Very, very nice to see you. Very nice to have you in the, the building this morning, uh, worshipping God and, and digging into his word together. So um, who's been enjoying the, the series we've been doing through Revelation? Who's been enjoying it? Hands up. I see a couple, so at least a few people have. That's good. Um, so we're continuing that this morning. We're looking at the letter to the church in Thyatira. So I, I just want a, a quick show of hands. Who's actually read all the way through Revelation? Like who's read Revelation in its entirety? few hands. Yeah, a few hands. I, I, I really, really like that. Um, I truly believe that Revelation is a lot less scary than people realise. I mean, it's, it's very uh, confusing and there's lots of dragons and, and horses and, and things going, going on there and, and a lot that um, sort of unnerves, unnerves Christians and what do we think about it all, what does it all mean? But um, I, I genuinely believe it has a really bright message of assurance all the way through if, if you're looking for it. If you're looking for that message of assurance that the Christian life is worth it, then it's there for you. It's there for you to, to pick up on. Um, so through the series, like Brad has been outlining to us, this book was, um, well, this book is a vision that was given to uh, a disciple of Jesus, to the Apostle John. Um, and he was on an island in the Mediterranean, um, serving time in exile on the island of Patmos. So he was kind of living out the rest of his, his days there. He'd done something to annoy uh, Rome, and so they sent him off there, and, and that was where he was spending the rest of his time on earth. Um, but then he gets this vision from, from the risen Jesus. He falls asleep one day and gets this vision of, of Jesus coming towards him and then revealing what's happening um, for, for the rest of, of time, but to, to bring assurance to him and to the churches that are suffering in Rome that, that this is all worth it. And the way I see it, um, the book of Revelation is just another way for the Apostle John to really stick it to the Apostle Peter. Peter and John have this running feud through the Gospels. If you read John's Gospel, read how many times he refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. And, and just Peter is just Peter. It's just Peter. Um, so John was the disciple whom Jesus loved in his Gospel. Um, he's also the disciple who beat Peter to the tomb. Uh, when they are seeing the, try, going to see the resurrected Jesus, he won the race to the tomb. He makes a point of noting that out. Um, he's also got three named letters in the Bible, as opposed to Peter, who's only got two named letters. It's, it's all adding up. And now he's been given, <clears throat> he's been given a revelation of the risen Saviour, the, the exalted Lord and friend, Jesus. Now, Peter hasn't been given that revelation, it's John. Um, obviously, I'm, I'm just joking, it's, it's not what they teach us at, at Bible college at all. Um, <laughs> So this book was written, um, to, uh, written to reveal Jesus to these um, seven churches in Asia Minor specifically. So it's, it's designed to reveal something specific about Jesus to each of them for their context. Um, but it's also written to reveal Jesus to the whole church universally, um, of whom these seven churches represent, um, represent the church universal. Um, and it's such, they cover such a wide span of church experience. Um, you've got the doctrinally sound church in Ephesus. You've got the suffering church in Smyrna, um, the half-in, half-out church of Pergamum, who we heard about last week. Um, but then later on in the letters, you've got the proud churches of Laodicea and Sardis, who Jesus has nothing good to say about, as well as the flourishing missional church of Philadelphia, which Jesus has everything good to say about. 
Um, so before we get into today's message, I want to remind us again of the Jesus that is showing this vision to John and who is writing these letters to the churches in Asia Minor. Um, he isn't Jesus meek and mild. He isn't Jesus humble and silent before his death. This is Jesus the exalted one. This is Jesus the one who lives forever and ever. So hear these words from Revelation 19 verses 11 to 16. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We are not dealing with Jesus the meek and humble here. This is Jesus the Lord of all creation. Jesus at whose name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess his lordship. So this morning I'll be jumping a lot between judgment and assurance. Um, this letter is, is quite harsh in some places. Um, it's got some very strong language in some places. But I want, you, I want to bring you to a place of encouragement and assurance though. I want to reorient our minds on the Jesus that is speaking to us this morning. He's so gracious to us, and by his blood we have salvation. But there is coming a time where the grace will run out. Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. And we will either be in right standing with God, or covered in our own sin and our own failed attempts to save ourselves. So Jesus has encouragement for the churches in Revelation, but he has a stern warning to some. To repent and come back to love and good deeds so that they can experience the reward of a victorious Christian life. So if you have your Bibles with this this morning, in paper form or in mobile form, um, turn or, or swipe or flick to Revelation 2, 18 to 29, and we'll, we'll get into the letter. It'll also be up behind me with any luck. So Revelation 2, 18 to 29. To the angel in the church of Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. So I will cast her onto a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her to suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, To you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. 
To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give them authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that it brings us life and it shows us your truth. Um, God, would you speak to us this morning and and make my words your words? Uh, Would you reveal your wisdom to us? And would you make your word, the Bible, real and relevant for us this morning? In your mighty, mighty name. Amen. Amen. So, my dear brother, Will, who's sitting right there, he has a problem. (laughs) I know, like, it's me. Apparently, I've got a problem. I'll have a problem after this, I'm I'm sure. Um, There is a certain saying in the English language that he cannot stand hearing. He cannot stand it. And it goes something along the lines of, okay, well, I think it's time, I think it's your turn to do the dishes tonight. Hates it. Can't stand it. Um, No, it's uh, it's the proof is in the pudding. Have have you ever heard that phrase, the proof is in the pudding? Very, very common. But he hates it when people say that phrase around him because he feels like it's not correct. Um, He feels like it's not correct. And honestly, he's got me convinced as well. I'm I'm on his side. I believe that it's not correct either. It's not correct. Yeah, you're right. So, for the purpose of this sermon, I did some research this week. I googled it briefly for five minutes and I confirmed that he is actually correct. The proof is in the pudding is not the correct way to say that phrase. So who's ready for an English lesson this morning? Who came to church to learn about our language that we speak? If, if anyone has learned English language as a second language, fantastic. Just all hats off, everything to you. If you got to the word yacht and continued, you did well. You did really, really well. Uh, anyway, the, the real way to say that phrase is, is the proof of the pudding is in the eating. The proof of the pudding is in the eating. So that basically means um, the final results are the only way to judge something's quality. Makes a lot more sense that way. We just got lazy is all. It's not technically wrong. Everyone knows what it means, but we've got lazy. Classic English language. Um, I used to have a bit of of a problem with it saying myself. Um, Have you ever heard the phrase, uh, to have your cake and eat it too? To have your cake and eat it too. Yeah, pretty common as well. But for the longest time, I just could not get my head around it. It just didn't sink in what, what that meant. I sort of heard it and vaguely knew what it, what it meant, but it just didn't make sense in my head. Um, even to like a few years ago, like it's embarrassing how long it took me to, to figure out what it meant. Um, but one day it, it clicked for me. And so it's talking about eating a specific piece of cake, but then still having that piece of cake left over to eat. Like, I mean, that's not exactly rocket science, right? But, I mean, me being able to play the drums and be smart, you guess you can't have your cake and eat it too, right? <laughs> and I'm so glad you laughed. I spent 10 minutes on that. <laughs> it didn't flop. It didn't flop. I sent it to Ruth just to see whether, whether she thought it was a good idea and she was um, on the fence about it. Uh, anyway, this church in Revelation is trying to have their cake and eat it too, I feel. The church in Thyatira are trying to hedge their bets on Jesus, but still enjoy the the pleasures of this life. They feel like 
ticking the box of salvation is enough and that they are trying to still enjoy the world's pleasures, the best thing that the world, world has to offer. But Jesus' stern words show that this is not a good thing to try and do. The Christian life and worldly pleasures do not normally mix well together. And this is going to be my, my big point for this morning. As followers of Jesus, we cannot have our cake and eat it too. We cannot have our cake and eat it too. We cannot enjoy all of the world's pleasures and yet still expect to get the reward of a Christian life well lived. But that's not what we hear from a lot of places these days, though. I mean, especially from, from Christian circles. Here, here, oh, crikey. here are just uh, a couple of examples of, um, of some of this teaching. God wants us to prosper financially, to have plenty of money, to fulfill the destiny he has laid out for us. God will begin to prosper you, for money always follows righteousness. These people are saying, you can have your cake and eat it too. So look with me to, to verse 20. Look with me to verse 20 of Revelation 2. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her onto a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her to suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. So Jesus is using very strong language to speak to the thigh tyrants. His stern words should be taken on board very, very seriously. He's addressing the quality of the teaching in Thyatira. There's a person rolling around claiming to be a prophet, claiming to have words that are equal to God's own words, or at least equal to the apostles' teaching. And this simply cannot be true. The Jesus followers in the church of Thyatira are being misled. They're being led into disobedience, assured that giving in to the world around them is a fine thing to do, assured that they can have their cake and eat it too. It is in it is in light of this information that Jesus' introduction to the letter in verse 18 is quite interesting. He says this, These are the words of the Son of God. These are the words of the Son of God. Not words of human origin, but words of divine origin. And I found it so intriguing to learn that this is the only time the phrase Son of God is used in the entire book of Revelation. The only time. So what is Jesus trying to say here to the Thyatirans and to us this morning? He's showing his divine credentials. This isn't just another voice in the sea of early church teaching, but it is the voice to listen to. What is following isn't human wisdom. What follows is truly divine teaching, truly divine encouragement, and truly divine rebuke. So my first point this morning is this. We can't have our cake and eat it too because Jesus is our God. We can't have our cake and eat it too because Jesus is our God. Jesus is not speaking to the Thyatirans as a co-sufferer like he did with the church of Smyrna. He hasn't written as a friend or a co-heir, you know, just on equal standing with the Thyatirans. 
But he's writing from above the Thyatirans. He's writing as their Lord and their God. And this sounds intimidating, but it's good news for us this morning. The one who stands above us as our Lord and our God is the one who speaks truth. True judgment, sure. True rebuke, absolutely. But also true empathy, true encouragement, and true assurance. But Jesus is coming against this false teaching in a strong way. He's coming against the teaching of having your cake and eating it too. The last half of verse 18 show that the clarity of Jesus' knowledge of the Thyatira and church and his worthiness to judge them rightly. The eyes like blazing fire strip back the fake works and reveal the true standing of each person in the church. And in that passage that I read right at the start in Revelation 19, we see that Jesus once again described as having eyes like blazing fire. And he was introduced in chapter 1 of Revelation as having eyes like blazing fire. Um, this language that is used in the letters, in the introduction, it's, it's used throughout the book. They're trying to relate this Jesus to the rest of Revelation. It's pictures picked up throughout the rest of the, the book. So we read this about the purpose of fire in 1 Corinthians 3, 11 to 15. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what they have built survives, they will receive their reward. If it is burned up, they will suffer loss. They themselves will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames." Jesus isn't fooled by our false piety. He isn't tricked by our, our Christian sleight of hands. Sleight of hands? Sleight of hand. Sometimes we have cake crumbs all around our mouth when we're still insisting that we haven't eaten the cake. And Jesus can see. His eyes of blazing fire can see that we are trying to have our cake and eat it too. But the good news, ironically, is that Jesus sees us. He sees the quiet work done in love and faithfulness. He sees the servant-hearted and perseverant person working out their salvation with fear and trembling. He sees the good things that are done in his name in the churches, and he encourages them. In verse 19, Jesus commends the Thyatirans. Yes, the very people that he has such strong words for in verse 20, he congratulates on their love and faith, service and perseverance. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than what you did at first. Jesus isn't all about judgment and rebuke for the Thyatirans. He is also about encouragement and assurance. He wants to challenge us on, on the bad things. He wants to challenge them on the bad things, for sure. But he also wants to encourage us and encourage them in the good. Be loving, be faithful, be servant-hearted, be perseverant and continue to do all of these things in greater measure. The bronze feet at the very end of verse 18 tell of Jesus' worthiness to pronounce judgment on wrongdoing. So in the, in the tabernacle or in the temple from the Old Testament, bronze was used to symbolise God's dealing of sin through judgment. So here, coming back to verse 
20 to 23, we see Jesus pronouncing his judgment on the sin that is occurring in the church of Thyatira. But as the one who has the feet like bronze, he's worthy to do so. Jesus sees both the good and the bad and is worthy to judge between them rightly. We cannot have our cake and eat it too because Jesus is our God and he sees and judges. Because he sees us and he judges. So we return back to verse 20 to investigate what is actually going so wrong at Thyatira. So what is Jesus' big problem with the Thyatirans? What are the things that his blazing eyes see so clearly? And what are the things that he pronounces judgment on? And it's, it's pretty obvious from the text. There's a person going around the church saying that they are a prophet, but yet they aren't. They're going around Thyatira claiming that their words carry the same authority as the words of God or the words of the apostles. But the things that they are teaching are completely out of order with the thing that, things that Jesus teaches. They're teaching that sexual immorality and food sacrificed to idols is good. Um, not necessarily for the enjoyment of the Christians, but mostly so that the Christians in Thyatira can make money. So this brings me to my second point this morning. We cannot have our cake and eat it too because Jesus is our Lord. We cannot have our cake and eat it too because Jesus is our Lord. So Jesus is urging the Thyatiran church to abandon this poor teaching and to follow him more seriously. He's warning the Thyatirans about the dangers of trying to have their cake and eat it too. He compares the prophet to a character in the Bible named Jezebel. Um, so he isn't saying their name is actually Jezebel, but he's just describing the type of person that they are. So like if I were to say that someone was a bit of a, a Lauren, a bit of a Pastor Lauren, I'm not saying that their name is actually Lauren. I'm just saying that they're very fashionable and they're very good at leading youth teams and they're very good at not replying to me straight away when I message them. <laughs> uh, uh, to find Jezebel's story, though, we need to go back into the Old Testament, into 1 Kings 16. Um, so Jezebel gets, uh, becomes married to a king named Ahab, um, who was the king of Israel. Um, and he's arguably one of the worst kings that Israel ever had. He was one of the furthest gone from God's commands that they'd ever had. He was already indulging in idolatry and ignoring God's commands. But Jezebel wasn't just an innocent bystander. She wasn't just wrong place, wrong time, was a woman in the Bible, got married to a king, so was tarred with the same brush. But she then led him further away from God, further into idolatry and further into sexual immorality. And then a couple of chapters later in 1 Kings 18, we see that she's hunting down and killing the Lord's prophets. Um, she's not exactly a picture of virtue in the Bible. So this Jezebel character in Thyatira is leading some of the Christians towards sexual immorality and idolatry. But... How could the Christians fall for it? And how could they not recognise the dangers of this type of teaching? And why on earth would they even consider doing it? The reason why the Christians would have considered these things is due to what type of city Thyatira actually was. So Thyatira, back in Asia, was known for its trade guilds. Um, so guilds are like, like the unions that we have these days-ish. Um, so all the, the wool workers 
or the leather workers or the bronze smiths would have belonged to an organisation that was specific um, to their craft. So the guilds undertook great constructions in the city of Thyatira, but they also held a lot of power and influence in the city. So if you wanted to work as a craftsperson in the city of Thyatira, you basically had to belong to one of these trade guilds. The problem is, is that the trade guilds are huge centres of pagan worship. They would be worshipping their patron god of wool or of bronze smiths or that sort of thing. They're distinctly anti-Christian. To be a part of a guild, you would have had to you would have to take part in the pagan feasts and the immorality that went along with some of their celebrations. Otherwise, you were out of the guild. And if you were out of the trade guild, you were basically out of work. Um, one commentator that I read said this, No merchant or trader could hope to prosper or make money unless they were a member of their trade guild. So what we see happening in Thyatira is the opposite of what we saw happening in Smyrna a couple of weeks ago. Smyrna, the, the suffering, um, suffering church. The Smyrnans were suffering greatly for their faith. They were losing their jobs and their income. And the Thyatirans are faced with a similar sort of end. But they're listening to a teaching that serves their needs better. They're listening to a teaching which tickles their ears a little bit better. They're trying to have their cake and eat it too. So what does that actually mean for us in sale this morning? I mean, I noticed that a lot of us aren't in trade guilds around sale. But how does, so how does this relate back to our circumstance? Um, the link between us and Thyatira is the motives behind the actions. I mean, sexual immorality and idolatry are bad, yes, but selling out Jesus for money is even worse. Selling out our faith for money is even worse. We live in a very blessed place and in a very blessed time in history. Um, no one's going around sale asking us to renounce our faith or lose our job. Um, no one's getting us fired because we follow Jesus. But the issue is, who do we have as the Lord of our life? And so I want to ask you this morning, who are you worshipping with your life? Is it Jesus or is it money? Matthew 6.24 says this, No one can serve two masters, for either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both love, both God and money. What would we give up anything for? Would we give up anything for Jesus, like the Smyrnans from a couple of weeks ago? Their jobs, their families, their lives. Or would we give up anything to have money, like the Thyatirans are? Their doctrinally sound teaching and their faith. The strong language that Jesus employs in verse 22 of chapter 2 of Revelation shows us his feelings about the way the Thyatirans are making money. Surely he doesn't actually mind how they make money, just as long as it doesn't resort to sin to secure their paycheck. Just as long as it, as it isn't money at all cost. But following Jesus, whatever the cost. In this day and age, we hear some alluring teaching about money. So those examples of poor teaching that I, I had earlier were real examples of the types of things that preachers sometimes say about money or prosperity. God wants us to prosper financially, to have plenty of money, to fulfil the destiny that he's laid out for us. How good does that sound? God will begin to prosper you, for money always follows righteousness. 
That sounds pretty nice. It isn't my job to shame the people who said those things, but I want to encourage you to listen very carefully to the teaching that you put into practice. Do not fall into the trap of listening to teaching just because it says what you want it to say. The Thyatirans would have wanted to have kept hearing the voice of Jezebel, the voice of the one saying that earning a living, whatever the cost, was okay. But the Thyatirans needed to hear Jesus' strong words of warning. You cannot have your cake and eat it too. Having money is okay, but are you following closely to Jesus with your life? Are you holding the things you've been given with an open hand? The Thyatirans thought they had a good enough reason to keep pursuing this kind of money-making. Their big argument was that this is my living and I must live. And this caused one of the early church fathers to counter their reasoning by writing a letter to them. And included in it was the phrase, viver ergo habes, or roughly in English, must you live? This is my living and I must live. Must you live? Must we live at the price of our witness? Must we live at the cost of our internal inheritance? Must we live at the price of the gospel? Matthew 16, 25. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. We cannot have our cake and eat it too because Jesus is our Lord. He commands us not to tolerate false teaching and to follow the teaching of himself, the one who holds the true authority in the world. Now, this all sounds like a total buzzkill, right? Tom said that Jesus doesn't want us to have any money. Tom said that Jesus is going to judge us all. But here comes the encouragement that I wanted to bring us to. Here comes the assurance. The reason that Jesus is writing so strongly to the Thyatirans is to dissuade them from sin. Not to kill their joy, but to increase their joy. And this is my final point for this morning. We cannot have our cake and eat it too because Jesus is our reward. Jesus is our reward. So how many people have heard of a social experiment um, where a child is placed in a room with a seat and a table and there's one chocolate on the, on the table in front of them? And so the instructor um, tells the child that they can, um, can eat the chocolate straight away or any time in the next five minutes. But if they wait five minutes then they'll come in and they'll bring them a cupcake or something far larger than just one little chocolate bar. The instructor leaves the room and the child simply sits in the chair for five minutes, however long was, was told, with a chocolate bar in front of them. And if they eat the chocolate, they don't get the cupcake. If they don't eat the chocolate, then they get the cupcake. In some versions I've seen, if the child even touches the chocolate bar, they forfeit the bigger prize. And this is the ultimatum that Jesus presents to the thigh, the, the thigh tyrants. You can either enjoy the pleasures that the world offers now and for a short time, or you can enjoy the pleasures that he offers later and forever. But before you make your choice, here's what Jesus is offering in verses 26 to 28. Here's this greater prize. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and dash them to pieces like pottery. 
just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give that one the morning star. In this battle of authority, Jesus versus Jezebel, Jesus offers the victorious Thyatirans something interesting. He offers them authority, true authority, not the man-made, self-given authority of Jezebel, but authority like the Son has authority from the Father. And commentators are a little unsure about what this actually looks like in practice. Does that mean that they would rule over people in this life? Probably not. Are they ruling over other Christians in the new heavens and the new earth? I mean, that seems a little strange as well. But however this plays out, this is a return to God's original plan for creation. So if we jump from the last book of the Bible to the first book of the Bible, we see that God's original intention was to make humanity in his image to rule over creation with him. Jesus' reward is a restoration of the proper created order. So once again, this is a little intimidating as well. But what happens if my theology is a little off? What if I I make the wrong decision and God takes my authority away? Surely I can't be trusted with ruling over the whole world. But this is an authority that won't be taken away. When we reach that place at the end of life, living in the new creation... Our desires will be perfectly aligned with God's own desires. Our lives will look like Jesus' life. This authority will not be taken away from the victorious Christian. Perhaps my most favourite reward out of all of the rewards that we see in the letters of Revelation is this next one, though. I will also give that one the morning star. I will also give that one the morning star. So this is another kind of confusing reward, uh, but one that brings us so much assurance and encouragement when we see what it is. So we read later in Revelation, in Revelation 22, 16, so last chapter of the, the Bible, that Jesus calls himself the bright morning star. And in, in the Greek, it uses the exact same language. Jesus is promising the church in Thyatira that if they are victorious, they will receive himself as a reward. You might wonder why we need to receive Christ again. I mean, aren't we united with him in salvation? Isn't it then meaningless that we are given Christ again? We are with Christ now, but it's in an incomplete capacity. That 1 Corinthians 13 verse, right at the the back end of that, that chapter, it says, I see in part, but then I will see in full. We're living in the now and the not yet. Like salvation has come to us now, but we're yet to realise that full salvation until the end of this age. And so in the same way, we are with Christ now, in a sense, but there is going to be a time when we are with him ultimately. We're going to have face-to-face interaction with the risen Lord. And what a reward that will be. What a reward that is for us. Far beyond any monetary value, far beyond any pleasures this life has to offer us, is perfect love and perfect community with our Father, with the Son, with Jesus. Can't mix them up. Um, We won't need half the things that the Thyatirans have been praised for in verse 19. They're being praised for love, faith, service and perseverance. The love and the service will endure, 
but faith won't endure. Why would we need faith when the object of our faith is standing right in front of us? Perseverance will not endure. If we remain faithful to the end, then we've persevered. There'll be no need to keep persevering in the kingdom. So hold tightly to the promises of God. Stay faithful and perseverant until that day that Jesus returns. Flee from sin and beware the false teachers. But set your eyes on Jesus and obey his voice. Be ready to experience the reward of being victorious over this life because he is coming again soon in power and in might to bring his people into the kingdom. We cannot have our cake and eat it too because Jesus is our God, meaning he sees and he judges. We cannot have our cake and eat it too because Jesus is our Lord, meaning that he has the true authority. And we cannot have our cake and eat it too because Jesus is our reward, meaning that the cake he offers is far better than the cake this world offers. As I close, um, I just want to, to read this verse out from Numbers twenty four seventeen. So if you cast your mind back to last week, we heard about this guy called Balaam. Um, and he was trying to pronounce curses on the, the Israelites, but he could only find blessings to speak over them. And this is one of the, the things he said over, over Israel. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Jesus is our star. He is our authority. And he's coming soon, friends. Obey his voice and be victorious over this life. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for the promises that we find in your word. We thank you that you promised us true authority like you've given your son, Jesus. And God, we thank you for the promise that we will receive Jesus as a reward when we persevere to the end. God, would you help our faith to be strengthened this week as we go out? Would you help our perseverance be strengthened this week as we go out? Would you help us not to value money over you, but to value Jesus over everything at all costs? Would you go with us this week? Would your Holy Spirit empower us to live for you? In your mighty name, amen.